Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the sixth and final episode of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, Peter Ford and Megan Lehman go over the ins and outs of federal procurement programs for small businesses. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good morning, and thanks for joining us as we discuss the ins and outs of federal procurement programs for small businesses. My name is Peter Ford. I'm a partner in Flair Matz's Government Contracts Practice Group. And with me today is my colleague, Megan Lehman, who is also a government contracts attorney with the firm. And with that, let's get started. So, Megan, how is operating in the federal small business programs any different than operating in the commercial world? I mean, I know there are there are many differences, but which one stands out most to you? I think the, the biggest difference in terms of operating as a small business in the federal world versus the commercial world is that the, the title um, of being a small business means a very different thing in the federal space than the commercial space. And there are a lot of rules and regulations governing what is a small business in the federal space. And a lot of things that may make sense in the commercial world, um, either from, you know, business perspective or operational perspective is not necessarily true in the federal space or, or when you're dealing with rules and regulations by the Small Business Administration or the SBA. So operating as a small business in the federal space comes with a lot of rules and regulations that you have to follow that you may not otherwise be familiar with if you primarily work in the, the commercial space. So if, if there are all these rules and regulations, I mean, why, why do it? I mean, what are some of the advantages of participating in small business programs? Well, the biggest advantage is that the federal government um, has a goal, a percentage of their contracting every year that has to go to small businesses and then different socioeconomic categories of the small businesses. So some of the programs are, you know, include not just small business, but the 8A business development program, the women-owned small business program, the service-disabled veteran-owned small business program, as well as the historically underutilized business zone or hub zone program. So having one or more of those types of designations allows companies to bid for work that is set aside for those types of contractors. So when I say set aside, I mean there's essentially you know a reserve. You can only bid on those particular contracts if you hold the status and the size that's associated there with. So you're allowed to compete against other similarly situated entities and not have to worry about competing against really large companies such as, you know, Lockheed Martin, GDIT, anything along those lines. So having these small business designations really does put you aside from the majority of the pack and allows you to bid for work that has been reserved for your type of of company. And you mentioned in terms of one of the differences, you focused on small. I mean, what what does it mean to be small, at least with respect to participating 
in some of these small business programs? Sure. So small is a very relative term in the federal space. And one company could be small for one contract, but not small for another. So SBA or the federal government really decides what a small business is based on industry. And every single procurement has a NACE code or a North American Industry Classification System code. And each one of those codes has a corresponding size standard. Those can take the form of either receipts-based or revenue-based, so essentially, you know, dollars, revenue, or they can take the form of an employee count. So how many employees do you have? And depending on what the applicable size standard is to the particular procurement that you are pursuing, that is the code and the standard that each company has to qualify as small. So you can have a company that qualifies as small under a NACE code that, let's say, has a $41 million size standard. But if they also wanted to pursue work in a NACE code that had a $15 million size standard but didn't qualify as small, while they might not be small under one procurement, they may be still small under another. And somewhat as a, a little bit of as an aside, SBA calculates size based on now a five-year look-back period for companies under receipts-based. And then currently, um, it's supposed to be 24 months for employee uh, size standards based on the NDAA. So in determining that calculation, you know, it's important to look at revenue from all sources, not just particular revenues under that particular code. So being small is not necessarily um, black and white. It's a, it's much more gray. Um, but the key is to look at what NACE code is applicable to the procurement that you are pursuing. So, Peter, I know that um, we kind of discussed the high level, you know, what is small business? And why are, what are some of the advantages? Um, and I mentioned briefly the, the programs, but could you expand on, on what types of federal small business programs are out there and available for companies to, you know, pursue? Yeah, and I think you touched on them, but there's, at least in the, in the federal world, there's the 8A uh, Business Development Program, uh, the Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Small Business Program, the Woman-Owned Small Business Program, and the Hubzone Small Business Program. So, I mean, those are the, those are the main ones, the main programs uh, available to socioeconomically owned businesses. So, Peter, I know I had mentioned regarding what the various small business programs are. And I know that typically under FA's regulations, the company has to be unconditionally owned and controlled by the qualifying individual. Uh, in your experience, you know, practically speaking, what does that mean? Sure. And I think I'll start with ownership. So generally speaking, the qualifying individual's ownership, so the 51% owner in the case of an SDVOSB, this would be the service disabled veteran, for example, his or her ownership must be direct, which means that it cannot be owned indirectly, for example, through a holding company. And, and as you mentioned, ownership also must be conditioned, un unconditional, which primarily means two things. One, the qualifying individual must be able to transfer his or her ownership interests whenever he or she wants and to whomever he or she wants. And then two, the qualifying individual must be entitled to the economic benefits of his or her ownership. 
And what that means, for example, is if you own 51% of the business, you must be entitled to receive at least 51% of the company's annual distribution of profits. So your ownership is commensurate with the amount of distributions that you are receiving. With control and under most of these programs, the starting point is that the, 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 the qualifying owner must have control over the company's day-to-day decision-making and long-term policy setting. And she or he must have managerial experience to run the business. Essentially, the SDA wants to see full control by the qualifying owner. So for example, if the company is a limited liability company, the qualifying owner must be the managing member with control over all LLC decisions, uh, which is a hard pill to swallow for minority investors because uh, the general rule, and there are certain exceptions under some of these programs, is that, is that all means all. And that just means any decision under the sun that this individual wants to make, he or she should be able to be able to make that decision without having to get the consent or approval of the minority owner or owners. And, and this goes as far as with respect to how are these governing documents going to be drafted? And at the end of the day, regardless of how they're drafted to demonstrate control, the qualifying owner has the ability to amend them and do that unilaterally. And again, that that's not unique to all business programs uh, or specific to all business programs, but it, it does apply to most of them. In addition, the qualifying owner, and again, this these are some additional features, I would say, of control. They certainly apply to the 8A program and they carry over to some of the other small business programs, but 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 not all of them, but we'll run through them anyways. So the qualifying owner must hold the highest officer position and be the highest compensated employee, and he or she needs to devote full time to the company. So any outside employment or outside business interest is going to raise a red flag with the SBA. So in a nutshell, that that's ownership and control. I mean, like, like I mentioned, there are some additional requirements, some of which are specific to the ADA program. For example, there are ownership um, restrictions. Um, but generally speaking, in terms of ownership and control, that's what SBA is getting at. And that it really applies across nearly every small business program, um, with the exception of, of HubZone, correct? Correct. Yeah, we'll get it. HubZone is its own kind of beast. Um, it has its own rules and regulations, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So I know you mentioned from you know the 8A program and perspective that they have different qualifications over and beyond the unconditional ownership or control. So for the, the 8A program, what are the other key qualifications that a company would have to meet? Sure. So the, 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 there's three big ones in addition to ownership and control. And it's social disadvantage, economic, economic disadvantage, and potential for success. So what this means is that the individual, the qualifying owner, has to demonstrate, first and foremost, that he or she is both socially and economically disadvantaged. Socially disadvantaged individuals are those who have been subjected to racial or ethnic prejudice within American society because of their identities as members of groups and without regard to their individual qualities. And SBA's regulations say... Uh, lay out five specific groups, minority groups, that SDA presumes to be socially disadvantaged. Uh, and those are Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Americans, and subcontinent Asian Americans. If you're not a member of one of those groups, presumed to be socially disadvantaged, uh, you have to demonstrate uh, social disadvantage by a preponderance of the evidence. So what does that mean? So. These individuals, meaning these individuals who don't fall into the bucket 
of uh, one of these designated minority groups, they have to show that a distinguishing feature, such as their race, their gender, maybe a physical handicap, has contributed to their social disadvantage. And you do this through a written narrative. And through that written narrative, you describe how you have been subjected to discrimination because of your race, for example, and how that discrimination has negatively impacted your ability to advance in the business world. It may sound simple enough, but it's often one of the most difficult eligibility requirements to uh, demonstrate that, uh, that you meet or that you comply with, but it's just one of them. Economic disadvantage, that means your ability to compete in the business world has been impaired due to diminished capital and credit opportunities. So in essence, what does your personal financial situation look like? And at the end of the day, it all boils down to numbers. And there are certain monetary thresholds that you need to fall under. For example, your personal net worth must be less than $750,000 after accounting for certain exclusions. And then finally, potential for success. Uh, this requires that you show uh, that the company has a reasonable prospect for success in competing in the private sector if admitted to the 8A program. Again, so what does that really mean? Well, right out of the gate, you need to be in business and generating revenues for at least two years prior to applying to the program. This requirement can be weighed under certain circumstances, but the point is that the 8A program, and SBA has made this clear, it's not designed for startup firms. SBA doesn't want to admit a company to the 8A program only to see it fail. In addition, potential for success requires that your business possess a favorable financial position. And to make that determination, SBA is going to review your financial statements and business tax returns for the past few years. There really are no magic numbers that they want to see on the financial statements or on the tax returns, but they do want to see that the company has positive working capital and positive net income and positive owner equity. And then in addition, to the financial position of the firm, they're also going to assess the experience and credentials of the applicant firm's managers. So those are the 8A eligibility requirements in a nutshell, but, but clearly there is more to it than just ownership and, and control. I guess, Megan, would you say the same for the SDBOSB and women-owned small business programs? And then can you tell us a little bit about the HubZone program? As I understand it's also a unique animal of its own. Sure. So. I'm going to start with the economically disadvantaged women-owned small business certification because the same economic disadvantage criteria that you had laid out in terms of the net worth, total assets, personal income applies um, for companies that are seeking certification as an economically disadvantaged women-owned small business. But the other components that you had laid out in terms of social disadvantage as well as potential for success do not apply in any of the other programs. Those specific requirements are unique to the 8A program. So the 8A program, as I understand, is not you know, meant for startups, but all of the other certifications are available to a company essentially from, from the get-go. As long as you know you continue to con to meet the ownership and control, as well as any of the other eligibility criteria. So for for economically disadvantaged women-owned small business, it tracks the 8A requirements um, in terms of economic disadvantage. But other than that, um, there are no specific or extra qualifications over and beyond the ownership and control piece. Although for all of the other programs, SBBOSB, WSB, and EDWSB, 
SBA will look at, or the VA, depending on on who, what type of verification you are going through, will look at the experience and qualifications of the managing member, the owner, the qualifying owner, and consider, you know, whether that person has requisite qualifications, whether they work full time for the company and so forth. So as it relates to women-owned small business, just on its own, not economically disadvantaged, essentially it's just ownership and control by one or more women. You can meet it through one or, you know, it doesn't have to be a single person. Um, it can be through multiple people. And other than the management, full-time devotion, those types of uh, considerations, there's nothing else that's specific or, or required for the women-owned certification. For the service-disabled veteran-owned small business program, similar analysis applies in terms of is one or more service-disabled veterans, and that is someone who has been vetted and qualified as a service-disabled veteran by the VA, do they, he or she, or multiple service-disabled veterans control the company? Do they have the requisite management experience needed to run the company? But for women-owned and service-disabled veteran-owned small business, there is no income limitation. There is no you know, potential for success analysis. So the qualifications are a little bit less than for 8A, but you still have to definitely qualify with the ownership or control piece, as well as you know, the management, technical assistance, all of that. So as it relates to HubZone, which we've mentioned is kind of its own beast. You can actually have indirect ownership. So all of the other programs we've been discussing require that the qualifying owner or owners control or sorry, have ownership directly. So they own the company directly, not through a holding company. There is an exception for a living trust as long as certain requirements are met. But in the hub zone world, you can actually have a company that is owned indirectly, as long as ultimately at least 50% or 51% of the owners are U.S. citizens. And then from there, the eligibility requirements really focus on where is a company's principal office located and where do the employees, at least 35% of the employees live. So it's a two-part analysis in terms of principal office as well as employee um, residency and eligibility. So for the HubZone program, the company's principal office, so the location where at least 50% of the company's employees perform their work, where they, you know, that particular location. There are exceptions for companies that are in services industries, you know, such as construction, where a lot of employees perform work on a job site. In those instances, you can exclude the employees that perform work on a job site, or at least primarily on a job site, so you wouldn't need to factor in their location in determining whether where the principal office is. But essentially, the location where most people, the most of the people who actually go to an office, where are they assigned? Where do they work? That location needs to be located in a hub zone. And SBA has a map online where you can easily put in an address and see if it if it qualifies as a hub zone or not. The other analysis is where do your employees reside? And at least 35% of a company's employees need to reside in a hub zone. 
And this is not only employees that work in the principal office, it's factoring in every single employee that the company has. And what the term employee means for HubZone purposes looks at how much time, how many hours does that particular person work for the company in the four-week period leading up to your verification or your certification. So if there's an individual who works 40 hours or more in that immediate four-week period prior to the relevant date, uh, then that person would be considered an employee for HubZone purposes. But if you have someone who only works maybe 10 hours, maybe they work you know, a couple hours a week, that person may not qualify as a quote-unquote employee as that term is defined for the HubZone program. But once you figure out who is and is not an employee, at least 35% of your employees need to reside in a hub zone. So if that, if you have 10 employees and only three live in a hub zone, you would not qualify. You have to get to that at least 35%. You need to get to that fourth person. So even though you're over 35%, if you only had three, you're under the 35%. And there are some, you know, things to consider in terms of what does reside mean? Where do I live? Things along those lines, but at a high level, those are the requirements for the HubStone program as well. Thanks, Megan. So hopefully that provides the audience with a high-level overview and a general understanding of, of the small business federal procurement programs. So with that, Megan, I guess, assuming that someone out there wants to participate in one or more of these programs, I mean, how do they go about doing so? Is there, is there a formal application process? Do you make a simple certification? Can you just touch on that a little? Yeah, of course. So the first thing to do before any company is looking to do business with the federal government or to get one of these certifications is to first start by registering in SAM, the System for Award Management, um, because you will need an active SAM registration before you can start the application process for the programs that require an application. So definitely start with the SAM registration. I know there have been a lot of recent changes to the program and moving away from the DUNS number towards the unique entity identification number and all that good stuff. But it's important to first start there. Um, Once you have a SAM registration, the application process differs based on which program you are pursuing. So we'll start with 8A since that's the first program we discussed. So the 8A program, you apply through SBA Certify. It's sba.certify.gov. And that is where the 8A program application gets done. There is essentially six sections to the application, and you'll walk through each one, um, provide the necessary documents, upload, and then go forth and submit the application. I will say the 8A application, in my experience, is about anywhere from a six-month to a year-long process. Typically, what occurs is you submit the initial application and then SBA will return the application at least once, if not two, three, four times and ask for additional information or clarification. This is definitely the most in-depth application and back and forth of any of the programs. So it definitely makes sense that it takes some time for SBA to process. But again, that is done through the certified.sba.gov website. Now, for women-owned and economically disadvantaged women-owned, you also apply through a certified system, but not to be confused with the one I just mentioned for the 8A program. That website is beta.sba.certify.gov. It is a completely separate separate platform. 
I will say, though, for economically disadvantaged women-owned small business and women-owned small business, if you already hold another certification, whether that be 8A or SBVOSB, then you can submit a copy of evidence of your certification and you're essentially grandfathered into the women-owned small business. Only You're only grandfathered into the economically disadvantaged women-owned small business if you are also an 8A company. So that's something to keep in mind. It is a separate platform than the 8A application, but it is similar in terms of the sections of the application, the documents you have to upload. And that process um, does take a while, um, not as long as the 8A, but it can take a few months for the women-owned or the economically disadvantaged women certification to go through. As it relates to service-disabled veteran-owned small business, Currently, this is the only certification left that is still a self-certification. So you can self-certify through your representations and certifications in SAM that you are a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. Nothing else is needed unless you are pursuing work with the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs. If you are pursuing work with the VA as a service-disabled veteran-owned small business, or a veteran-owned small business, you must go through a verification process with the VA Center for Verification and Evaluation, CVE, and they you essentially complete the application, upload the documents to the VA through their program, and they'll verify the company as either service-disabled veteran-owned small business or a veteran-owned small business. The veteran-owned small business set-aside only applies in the VA world. I will caution that beginning January of 2023, the self-certification option for non-VA procurement will be going away. So all companies will need to go to through um, and now and the verification is going to be shifting from the VA to SBA beginning in January. So beginning January of 2023, all companies who claim service-disabled veteran-owned or veteran small business status will need to go through a formal application process with the SBA. If you are WSB, you may or may not recall that SBA implemented the certification requirement back in 2020, um, and they allowed for essentially a period of time where you could apply to the program, and as long as you had submitted an application, you could still bid on a procurement that was set aside for WSBs. I expect SBA to do a similar concept and kind of grace period for SBVOSBs because there are a significant number of SBVOSBs that are not verified by the VA. And it will take SBA, you know, a decent amount of time to get through all of the applications. So my recommendation would be to try to get your application in with the VA prior to January 2023 because SBA will grandfather you into the certification if you have already been verified. So my recommendation would be to, to start, do it now. But if not, that's okay. You'll just need to go through a certification beginning in January. As it relates to the HUBZone program, you apply through SBA's general um, GLS system. It's, again, a different website, different system. You initiate an application, fill out not too many questions, kind of high level, 
And then once you verify the application, you then have a few days to provide SBA with all your supporting documentation. So as it relates to the HUBZone program, you have to provide payroll records, um, lease uh, copies of driver's license, things along those lines to demonstrate your, your employees, where they live, if you qualify from a principal office and employee count. As it relates to all of the other applications, you do have to provide, you know, your company's governing documents and any other relevant documents that the SBA or the VA requires. So every application is different. We as a firm and myself individually help companies work through that program, um, all those applications and all the programs. So if you have any specific questions or concerns, feel free to reach out. And lastly, Peter, I know that we discussed as it relates to, you know, small businesses, what are their advantages? Well, you know, they can pursue work as a, a prime contractor on set-aside work. But what if the company isn't really ready for, for prime work? What are some other options that companies have in terms of still, you know, being involved in federal contracting? Right. Thanks, Megan. So, it, and it's not uncommon uh, for a company that's brand new to federal contracting to you know, put these small business programs on hold, get some work under their belt, and then apply. So the question then is, well, how do they get this work under their belt? Well, one of the ways is they, they become a subcontractor to a large business. And large businesses are required to, what are called, to have what are called small business subcontracting plans. And the purpose of the small business subcontracting plan is to ensure large businesses are setting aside part of the federal money they receive to subcontract to small businesses. And when I say small businesses, it's just not small businesses. It also includes these other socioeconomic categories that we have discussed, such as service disabled, veteran-owned small business, veteran-owned small business, women-owned and economically disadvantaged, women-owned small businesses, hub zone concerns. There is no, at least for subcontracting plan purposes, there's no 8A category, but there is a category for small disadvantaged business, and every 8A firm is a small disadvantaged business. So they are included as well, just by a different term. The subcontracting plan is developed by the large business prime and approved by the government. It lays out a number of things, such as the methods used by the prime contractor to locate, recruit, and retain small business subcontractors. But the critical part of any small business subcontracting plan are the goals, meaning the percentages of contract work the prime anticipates subcontracting to the various socioeconomic business categories. And yes, they are goals, but primes can be held accountable if, for example, they make no effort to achieve those goals. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed the session. Thanks, Peter. To recap for everyone, today we've discussed, um, I know we've covered a lot of information, um, but we've discussed at a high level the various requirements to qualify, not just as a small business, but also for SBA's socioeconomic programs, including the 8A program, the women-owned small business program, as well as the economically disadvantaged women-owned small business program, the service-disabled veteran-owned small business program, as well as the historically underutilized business zone or hub zone program. If you have any questions or concerns about any of these programs, feel free to reach out to Peter or I. I believe you should have our contact information, and we greatly appreciate you listening in today. This podcast is a Polero Maza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.